I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Astronauts report it feels good. T minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. astronaut Michael Collins recounts in his memoir Carrying the Fire that one of their requirements during astronaut training was to learn a great deal about geology in preparation for the kinds of rocks they may encounter on the moon. Some of their education included field trips, one of which was to the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Collins, himself a jet pilot, recounts one trip up from the bottom of the canyon. Quote, Our trip down the canyon took nearly the whole day. So we spent the night in a charming inn at the bottom, 
And the next morning, those of us who wanted to rented burrows for an expedited ascent. I chose to ride, but picked up an animal which stopped walking whenever I stopped kicking. So I got as much exercise as if I had been afoot. I also had plenty of time to contemplate the rapid pace at which I was speeding toward the moon. From supersonic jets at Edwards, I had progressed all the way to kicking a burrow up out of the Grand Canyon, end quote. Before making the ascent into the heavens toward the lesser light that governs the night, Collins made the slow climb out of the canyon on the back of a mule. It reminds me in a small way of what the creator of the moon himself did, making the ascent toward Calvary on the back of a donkey along a dusty Jerusalem road. As Jesus said, a servant is not above his master, humility before glory and exaltation. The way out of the pit, the way to the top, often seems slow, difficult, inconvenient, and impossible. But we know how both stories turn out. Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death with his own, and many days later, Jesus would himself ascend through the heavens. Quote, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come again in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. End quote. And nearly 2,000 years later, the burrow-riding astronaut Collins would find himself taken up into heaven on pillars of fire from five enormous F-1 Saturn V engines and would safely return to Earth eight days later. But while on the surface of the moon, another lesser-known historical event took place. Edwin Buzz Aldrin, the second man to set foot on the lunar surface, took communion. In his transmission back to Earth, Aldrin said, quote, Houston, this is Eagle. This is the LM pilot speaking. I would like to request a few moments of silence. I would like to invite each person listening in, wherever and whomever he may be, to contemplate for a moment the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his own individual way. End quote. Buzz also noted that in the radio blackout, he opened the little plastic packages which contained the bread and the wine. He said, quote, I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given me. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine curled slowly and gracefully up the side of the cup. It was interesting to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten there were communion elements. End quote. Our most advanced human exploration of the cosmos not only contains some very ancient elements, but the accomplishment itself is now half a century behind us. This dispels the myth of what C.S. Lewis termed chronological snobbery, the idea that our current age is superior to all others that have come before it. As author and Apollo historian Andrew Chankin marvels, quote, How could the most futuristic thing humans have ever done be so far in the past? In the narrative of the space age, Apollo is a chapter that is jarringly out of sequence. End quote. The man who was chiefly responsible for designing and overseeing the construction of the massive Saturn V rocket was German rocket engineer Werner von Braun. As a child, he loved rockets. His interest in them began with an awestruck fascination over a book he could barely understand called Rocket to Interplanetary Science 
by Professor Herman Oberth. It was filled with all sorts of complicated mathematical equations and technical formulas. After excitedly turning its pages, young Von Braun eagerly asked the teacher, How can I understand what this man is saying? Von Braun went on to become a rocket engineer and was eventually forced to design the V-2 rocket used by Hitler during World War II. Von Braun nearly lost his life in an Allied bombing raid during the war, but his Christian faith strengthened him to endure the trials and tribulations he experienced both during and after the war. Thus, a remarkable string of events leads to an unlikely pairing. An astronaut kicking a mule up out of the Grand Canyon eventually sits atop a 360-plus-foot rocket designed by a former scientist and rocket engineer from Nazi Germany. Life can be very strange sometimes, and it is a true marvel and a testament to the grace of our Creator, the Lord Jesus, The 12 men set foot on the lunar surface and returned safely to Earth. So maybe you find yourself lugubriously plodding along on your own burrow. Be encouraged. Launch day soon follows. Collins not only got out of the canyon, he made it to the moon. And Jesus came out of the grave and made the ascent into the heavens on our behalf for his glory. And this is just a little podcast about the journey of Apollo 11, which carried the first pair of human feet to the lunar surface, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Buzz Aldrin, a half century ago. Good heavens, Wayne, we are about to launch another podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Dan. Uh, ready to, ready for liftoff to uh, our, our Apollo 11 podcast. It is. We are not. We are recording this on in South Lake at our favorite coffee shop, and uh, we are recording this on the 50th. Well, for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 launch and subsequent moon landing. Right on July 16th, the rocket took off. On July 20th, the Eagle landed at Tranquility Base. That's right. And then on July 24th, they splashed down somewhere in in an ocean somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and the aircraft carrier Hornet picked them up, mm-hmm. and it was a remarkable thing. And so we're going to be talking uh, two old guys just talking about Apollo stuff because uh, you were a little older. You were 9 or 10. I was a Yeah, b- I was 10. I was a baby, uh, so I don't remember it, but I was yeah. alive. Um, but it, it's a it's a historic event. It's amazing that this happened. One of the most advanced. Um, yeah, everybody that could watch TV was watching this yes. on TV. Tens of millions of people, not just in the United States, but all over the world. All over the world, including I. I read this just this morning as we were preparing, as I was preparing, the <clears throat> Emperor of Japan, Emperor Hirohito, was mm. watching the landing. I don't know if he watched the launch or everything, but he was watching the landing and. Uh, we'll, but we'll get into that. We, we have a lot to yeah. get into. There's a lot of wonderful stories about uh, Apollo 11, but we're going to be we're going to be focused on Apollo 11 uh, in celebration of the 50th anniversary. And so this is just uh, two fuddy duddies <laughs> talking about Apollo in a coffee shop. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's still something that should be remembered. Yes. and it was a big deal to everybody in the world at the time. Absolutely, and uh, Absolutely. there's a lot of. Uh, Actually, there's a lot of neat science in the whole thing. Yeah. And I like that side of it. Uh, and then uh, it's it's good to know that uh, there's only two of the three crew members alive. Uh, Neil Armstrong passed away in uh, 2012. Mm. Um, but Michael Collins, 
who piloted the command module that went around the moon, mm-hmm. uh, and then Buzz Aldrin, who was the second man to walk on the moon. They're both still living. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll get into this, but uh, we want to lead off with some scripture in relation to going to the moon and how this relates to what we're talking about today. So Wayne, you've got a couple of verses and I'll read one. Yeah, I was looking for things in the Bible that mentioned the moon. And there was one that was kind of a surprising one to me. This is Deuteronomy 4.19. And uh, now this is about, it was talking to the ancient Israelites, telling them not to worship the sun and moon, right? But you want to notice the end of the verse here. Okay, so what is it again? Deuteronomy 4.19. Deuteronomy 4.19. All right. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under under heaven. Okay, so God has, this is like what Psalm 19 says, where the line of the heavens has gone out throughout the whole earth. Why is that, uh, how do you see that as so a tie-in to the moon? He, it says he is apportioned to all the nations under heaven. This is very similar to the plaque that was on the lunar lander in, a, on a, in the Apollo 11 mission. Yeah, the It lo- said, we have come in peace for all mankind. For those who haven't uh, read the plaque, uh, we'll read the plaque that's on the front landing gear of this lamb. There's, there's two hemispheres, one showing each of the two hemispheres of Earth. Underneath it says, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969, A.T. It came in peace for all mankind. It has the the crew members' signatures and the signature of the president of the United States. Yeah, so there's the plaque. There's the base of the rocket that launched Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin back to Michael Collins in Columbia so that they could go back home. The base of that rocket is still on the moon, Yeah, as are uh, other moon, moon vehicles. Uh, the moon buggy is still there. Uh, all the launch pads from 11, 12, well, 13 didn't make it. Yeah, uh, and probably when they when they blast back off of the moon with the top of the lunar lander, right? That gets left out there, and uh-huh. it probably crashed on the moon somewhere. Yeah, they once they uh, once they kept climbing back into the <clears> command <throat> module, that there's a lot of uh, Apollo junk uh, yeah. that fell back to the moon or is floating out there in space somewhere still. Yeah, so we yeah. still got our junk on the moon. We still have and, uh, a. It's becoming a. There's a surveyor spacecraft <laughs> or two, and yeah. Um, well, so those are good scriptures. You have another one there, Psalm. Another. Yeah, psalm. this is Psalm 89. Um, now this is talking about King David, uh, and a descendant of his being uh, ruling. Uh, but the, no, the interesting thing about it, it says it refers to the moon as the faithful witness in the sky. I like that. So it's it's like saying. Yeah. The moon stays there, and this is a sign that God's promises stand. Yeah. I mean, and and if you just look at the history of the science of the moon, it's as regular. It's more regular than than the clocks that I have in my house because the clocks I have in my house fall behind. They run ahead. Right. No two clocks in my house are keeping the same amount of time. (laughs) Right. And we benefit from the moon. The moon uh, benefits life. The tides stir up the ocean in a way that, that helps the sea life, uh-huh. and we benefit from that. And, you know, if the moon weren't there, we wouldn't wouldn't have had Apollo 11. Did... Yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, it was in 1961 that President John, I think it was May of 1961, that President John F. Kennedy went before Congress mm-hmm. 
and uh, put forth the challenge that we will land a man on the moon before the end of the decade and return yes. him safely to Earth. Right. And then uh, later on at Rice, right here in Texas, he gave a speech at the summer in the stadium at Rice Stadium uh, about going to the moon. We don't go to the moon because it's easy. We go to the moon because it's hard. Mm-hmm. You know. But what's interesting, I found this out uh, years ago, that I think it was in 61. I don't know the exact time that the, the, this happened, but, but sometime... Uh, shortly before or after Kennedy's moon speeches, um, he was challenging Americans to go to the moon, but we didn't even have the cassette tape yet. <laughs> so <laughs> we were talking about some advanced technology, and I can't imagine that people who heard Kennedy's words for the first time must have thought he had lost his mind or, or yeah, a, yeah. a very shocking uh, command. Just going to the moon by itself, but in, in nine years... Yeah, we don't have the metals, we don't have the motors, we don't have the rockets, we don't have. How are we going to do this? Yeah, you know, this so is, it it was truly a uh, remarkable reach, amazing thing to do that. So, um, so the moon is a faithful sky, a faithful witness in the sky, uh, and that's part of what Psalm nineteen says: when the heavens declare the glory of God, and they pour forth speech, and they uh, pour forth knowledge. Um, that the the faithful witness of the moon, the regularity of the moon, is the fixed order that God has created, and so naturally we want to spend billions of dollars and try to find out more about it, right? Um, so I have another verse that is directly related to Apollo eleven um, that mentions the moon as well. Psalm eight three. It's a psalm of David, and it says in verse three, David is confessing that. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, mm. the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, mm. what is man that thou dost take thought of him, yes. and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Now, this is a verse that mentions the moon, but it's particular to Apollo 11 because it is a verse that Buzz Aldrin wrote down on a notepad, a piece of paper, and put it in his uh, pocket of his astronaut suit. And when the eagle landed on July 20th, as Neil Armstrong was walking around the surface of the moon, Buzz Aldrin was uh, taking communion in the lunar lander. He brought some wine and bread that he had from his church where he attended in Houston and gave himself, administered communion to himself, but he read that scripture. Uh, also along with John 14:6, I am the vine, you are the branches. And apart from me, you can, you can do nothing. Uh, so mm-hmm. I don't know where Aldrin is today with his Christian faith, if he is still mm-hmm. a Christian or not. But Psalm 8:3 <clears throat> was read from uh, the surface of the moon by Buzz Aldrin. I don't think he read it over the radio um, communication with Houston, but uh, he took that to the moon. And so there's a, you can go online and see the uh, piece of paper, Buzz Aldrin moon verse. Uh, you can look that up on Google and see the picture in Buzz's oh, really? handwriting. Yeah, so so uh, so scripture went to the moon, yeah. um, and uh, and and uh, it's just a remarkable testament, not only to what man has achieved, but what what God has allowed us to achieve. Because uh, Michael Collins, who was the lunar module pilot, he was the third of the of the three who didn't walk on the moon, um, said that there were so many things that could go wrong that he wasn't sure that when they launched that they were going to make it, you know, mm. just just not not confident that this is going to – too many moving parts. <laughs> yeah, and there was uh, – I've watched several different program, TV programs about about this, Dan, and 
there's a lot of different programs, uh, documentaries that have been done over the years about this. But um, one of, in one of them, they were telling about the training the astronauts go through. And uh, there were sometimes accidents that could have been very serious accidents, and they, they survived. Like Neil Armstrong was in this device that was meant to train him to pilot the lunar lander. Yeah. And yeah, it was a yeah. kind of weird-looking thing. That, they, look, they called it the flying bedstead. The flying bedstead. <laughs> it, it was a weird contraption that flew right, and, right. And with legs, right? And he was trying to land on the legs, got out of control on the way down, and he had to eject. In the last possible second, he ejected away. And uh, they they too do these things, and they just kind of go on, you know. And but but they there was a comment once that one of them thought there was some must be somebody smarter than we are watching over what we're doing in our training. That, Absolutely, so, yes, you know, yes, yes. A little backstory about, about that, uh, talking about training and accidents. So of course we're talking about Apollo Eleven. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that comes up a lot is, what happened to Apollo 1 through 10? <laughs> we'll talk about that in just a minute. Yeah. But Apollo 1 was kind of tragic in that uh, Roger, uh, uh, Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chaffee had lost their lives in a tragic fire mm-hmm. when they were testing communications between the rocket and uh, mission control. They were, un- they were having some wiring problems, but the, the gentlemen were seated and fully suited up and enclosed in this capsule in a 100% oxygen environment. And that oxygen, that they had a short in the wire, and in that oxygen-rich environment created a, an unquenchable fire that they, they couldn't put out. So the three guys lost their lives. Yeah, th- that fire was so hot. It was terrible. It was... It broke the capsule open. Yeah, it split. It broke the, through the sides of the capsule. It split the capsule. They couldn't get to the guys, so it was pretty quick, but... The tragedy was, I mean, that's Apollo 1. It didn't leave the launch pad. They were just having communication right. problems and wiring problems. But that, out of that tragedy, they figured out, well, we better adjust the oxygen environment in the capsule, and well, let's not do that again. Right. Um, but, but Ed White was the first man to walk in space, the first guy to do a, right. a, a, an extravehicular yeah. uh, uh-huh. walk out into space. Ed White was a dedicated believer, mm-hmm. and one of his dreams was, as an Apollo astronaut, to take the Bible to the moon. Right. And that was one of his dreams. And so Ed's pastor and friend, I think it was his pastor, the Reverend John Stout, after Ed's passing, founded the Apollo Prayer League. Mm-hmm. And so at the height of the Apollo Prayer League, there were some 60,000 members in the league that were routinely dedicated to praying for the program and for the astronauts involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really was a remarkable backstory. Um, there's a book called The Apostles of Apollo, which details all of the backstory about the prayer league, about John, the Reverend John Stout, and just how much uh, specifically Christian faith was a part of many of the astronauts' lives. And, and right, it makes me wonder what would have been different if the, there hadn't been this prayer behind it. Right. You know, we right. don't know. I, right. I, don't, I don't claim to know. Right. But uh, that's certainly interesting. Well, and it, it's interesting too. I, this probably was not associated with the prayer league directly. But um, either sometime after the launch or on the landing of the moon, the football coach of the Green Bay Packers at the time, so who was the coach of the Green Bay Packers in 1969? The man who the NFL championship trophy is named after, Vince Lombardi. Lombardi, He was the coach of the Green Bay Packers, and when he heard the news that the Eagle had landed, he stopped football practice and had his team pray for the astronauts. 
Really? Yes. Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi. He was a good Catholic, but he loved football. Huh. But uh, it's documented in a book that I have called First, an old book I have called First on the Moon. And uh, it's only a little snippet, but uh, but he, he talks about how, you know, football is super important, but this was more important, and he felt the need to, to stop practice and pray for the guys on the moon. So that's a little that's neat. tidbit. I didn't know that story. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Well, these, these, there's so many Vince little... Vince Lombardi. Is that the kind of guy you picture doing this, right? <laughs> right. Um, but there's so many stories like that, Wayne, behind this. We could, we could, I just, I just can't help but wonder what the, what the team guys said about this. Is there something wrong <laughs> what's, with what's, coach what's today? To the coach? What's, right. What's happened to the coach? Well, here's, here's the actual excerpt. I'll read it a little bit. It says, earlier in the week, Coach Vince Lombardi of football's Washington. Okay, it was a Washington Redskins. He wasn't the coach of the Packers. He was the coach of the Redskins at the time. Oh. A Roman Catholic who attended mass every morning stopped practice to show his players a side of himself that few of them had ever seen. He asked them to pray for Armstrong, Collins, and Aldrin. And, and they quote him, and he says, quote, This is something transcending what we all do, said Lombardi, who had a reputation for eating football players alive. I'm <laughs> conscious that there are a hell of a lot more things more important than football, you know how much I love football, and this is one. Huh. So that's just a little thing right there um, about that. But but we mentioned earlier the the number of missions that came before eleven. Why did not Apollo two or three or four or five or what? Why the numbering system? Why did eleven make it to the moon? You have a little story about that. Well, Apollo one is the one where they lost three lives and they had to redesign things in the capsule. And so there was a lot of uh, a lot of safety concerns after that, obviously. So that was one thing they had to work on. And there's a lot of uh, difficult things about the rocket. There's a lot of different aspects of it, Dan. You can talk about stories of how they mounted all of these challenges. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> they had a lot to do to figure out the rocket and get the rocket built. The uh, the rocket, the Saturn V rocket, it's called Saturn V because it had five big engines. Uh-huh. Three-stage rocket, and on top of the third stage was a smaller thing that had the uh, a small rocket behind the astronauts. In the, in the, in it the, was an in ejection the, the rocket. The capsule that they were in, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, the capsule was mounted on a small rocket, and then behind that was... The lunar lander kind of folded up. Right. The legs were folded up, and it was stuck inside a, a sort of container to hold mm-hmm. it during mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the liftoff. Now, the Americans had built a new engine for this, for the Saturn V. It was called the F-1 engine, and they had five of them. Mm-hmm. Now, the Russians were trying to do the same thing, and they had a really large rocket, kind of comparable to Saturn V, but it was called the N1. Mm-hmm. The N1, Dan, had something like 21 engines. Oh, my goodness. Because they couldn't make, or, or they didn't make the its engine, and it, one engine is large, you see. They uh-huh. had to have more of them because they couldn't make them as powerful as yeah. the F1 that NASA had. And when they built all these engines, that meant that it's hard to control them. Yeah. You have kerosene and liquid oxygen firing this rocket. And and in the second and third stages, it's liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. You're talking about the Saturn V now? Yes. Yeah, okay. So there's so much 
combustible fuel, and you can't afford for this rocket to no. leak any fuel anywhere. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and uh, just vibration and the sound levels from the from the uh, rocket being turned on could blow it up. Yes. If you didn't have things, so controlling this thing, it's like controlling a, a massive bomb. Um, and he, let me read some numbers, Dan, about okay. about the rocket and when the fuel and so on. It took uh, twenty thousand companies to build the Saturn V rocket. I didn't know that. Twenty thousand companies. Oh my goodness! Four hundred thousand engineers from all those companies. Wow. And and uh, it was a long process to build the rocket. Now and get this it ready. thing, just the height of this thing, just to give people an example, is three hundred some odd feet. Three hundred sixty some feet. It was taller than the. Uh, Statue of Liberty. Mm. So you're sitting on giant canisters of fuel, five F1 engines, just massive. And by the way, as you're talking about this, this visual came to mind. Uh, we'll keep it going here. Just at the uh, Space Center in Houston, the Johnson mm-hmm. Space Center in Houston, mm-hmm. they have a Saturn V on its side. Right. That was supposed to be, well, it, it, it was the rocket, the actual rocket that was going to be Apollo 20. Oh really? So they have the whole thing on its side, minus the the lander, um, but but the F one engine cones in the back are as big as a garage of a house. Oh yeah, huge. There, well, you don't get the full scale of this thing until you actually stand there in the hangar with this. It's, it's just enormous. And so, yeah, everybody should go down there and see that. They're that huge. Is, I've been there once. Yeah, the the Johnson Space Center is awesome because you get to see the original room where Mission Control was. And you get to see the – I didn't know this until I went down there. When the astronauts were communicating with Houston, you know, uh, Houston, this is uh, Apollo 11, uh, the astronauts' voices only came through one little tiny green speaker. It was one little <laughs> speaker. There, not everybody could hear it. Not They weren't coming through everybody's headphones. They weren't coming in through giant PA systems in the room. It was coming through one tiny little squawk box. Yeah, and sometimes there was a lot of noise, and it was probably hard to hear them. So. Yeah, and uh, there was only one man that communicated with, with uh, the flight as it went. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Charlie Duke, who was the 10th man to walk on the moon from Apollo 16 and the youngest moonwalker, he was the voice of Houston. I have a story about that in a little bit, but keep on with these amazing statistics about the rocket itself. Okay, let's let's say a little a little bit more about the fuel. This is a, such a gigantic rocket. This is an unimaginable amount of fuel, Dan. It's, it's incredible. Like Eighty-nine truckloads of liquid oxygen. Oh my goodness! Twenty-eight trailer loads of liquid hydrogen. And 27 rail cars full of kerosene for one <laughs> blast off. Oh, my goodness. Of the, of the Saturn V. That's some flammable. No smoking, so right? The, yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> so in the, uh, the weight of the rocket, the weight of the rocket was 6.2 million pounds. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I haven't pounds. heard these stats. I've never looked and into this. And the rocket thrust generated 7.5 million pounds of thrust. So the difference between those two numbers, 1.3 million pounds, that's what would accelerate the rocket. Wow. Now, I want to explain a little bit about escape velocity because people kind of misunderstand it. Yeah, what that means is basically you how to get out of Earth's gravity, get off the, gra- right. the grip so, of gravity. Um, technically, the number is about around 11 kilometers per second for the Earth, but 
but that means at the surface. But escape velocity depends on the distance. Mm-hmm. So you don't really want to escape from Earth's velocity at the surface because that would take a lot more energy, yes. energy and mm-hmm. fuel and everything. Gradually. And uh, NASA worked on a design for an even bigger rocket than the Saturn V, mm. and they decided to uh, – it was cheaper and better to use a little smaller one because somebody came up with a clever multi-stage idea for how it would work. Anyway, <clears throat> so what they want to do is get this spacecraft up into orbit in a high orbit so that, you see, when it's far, the farther up it goes, the less escape velocity is. Mm-hmm. So you want to get it up so that the spacecraft is close to escape velocity, mm-hmm. but just a little less. Okay. That way, a small rocket will Take put over. it over the edge and over escape velocity. Got it, got it. It has to go past escape velocity to start the trip to the moon. Right. And then what, what a lot of people don't know, and I didn't know this until not too long ago, but the Apollo 11 and all the rockets that went to the moon uh, circled the Earth once. Or once or twice, it was once. Yeah, probably they had to do that to get going uh, in the right direction. Yeah, to get a momentum. So they circle the Earth once, and then they go for translunar injection, where they leave the orbit of the Earth. You go for TLI, and they leave Earth and head into the moon. But uh, you're talking about all this thrust, and about 360-foot-tall monster with gigantic amounts of fuel. And (laughs) what would it be like, Wayne, to drive this thing? What do you think the men sitting on top of this felt like? What did, what did it go through their minds? I want to read probably the, the most clear description. And Michael Collins' words on this are fantastic. <laughs> he writes a paragraph about what it was like sitting on top of the Saturn V, all that fuel, all that rock and roll, and all those, the power of five F1 engines going up into space, mm-hmm. going up, leaving Earth's escape velocity. So this is what Mike Collins says. Again, he was the third of the three of the Apollo 11 mission. He says, uh, talking about liftoff now, I'm just talking about when the rocket began to lift off. He says, it was, I thought, quite a rough ride in the first 15 seconds or so. I suppose Saturn's, that is the rockets, I suppose Saturn's are like people in a way. No two of them are exactly the same. Ours was very rough at first. I don't mean the engines were rough. I don't mean that it was noisy, but it was very busy. That's the best word. It was steering like crazy. It was like a woman driving her car down a very narrow alleyway. She can't decide whether she's too far left or too far to the right, but she knows it's one or the other, and she keeps jerking the wheel back and forth. Think about a nervous lady, a very nervous lady, not a drunk lady. The drunk lady probably would have more relaxed, be more relaxed and do a much better job. So there we were, just very busy steering. It was all very jerky, and I was glad when they called Tower Clear because it was nice to know that there was no structure around when this thing was going through its little hiccups and jerks. <laughs> yeah, but see, the jerkiness quieted down after about 15 seconds. Well, see, Dan, those rocket engines swivel. Yeah. And they have to operate together. They have to operate very precisely together. If they got out of balance... The rocket that would, would probably destroy the rocket. So this happened to the Russians. Yeah, the, the in July of '69, the Russians were trying to take off with this big N1 rocket I was talking about. Mm-hmm. They had a problem. One of the engines, for some reason, blew up. Oh wow! And that caused other problems with the other engines. And so, when something goes wrong like that, you have to have all the engines shut down together, or else. 
it's going to go, go crazy. Crazy and it's something weird. So they have an elaborate system to shut down these engines and a point of problem happens. Uh-huh. All of them shut down except one. So it was there was one remaining engine that stayed on and it made the rocket tip over and it there was a huge fireball, a few a huge explosion and it destroyed the whole launch facility. Wow. Wow. This happened in July of 1969. So that's the year to the Russians. That's the same uh, month and year that we we went to the moon. There was, there was no astronauts on that rocket, well, fortunately, or cosmonauts. Yeah, uh, they were. They, that particular rocket was meant to uh, put uh, something in orbit around the moon to get better pictures. So they were trying to find a landing place. Right, right. But they couldn't even couldn't even get to orbit. So the gyro, the, the the what do you call them? The gyros <coughs> that are keeping the engines. It would be something if I'm understanding this right. The gyros are are what keeps it uh, keeps the direction. So it was, it's kind of like if you tried to balance a golf club on the tip of your finger, you mm-hmm. have to kind of walk back and forth to keep it balanced. That's essentially what's happening with the gyros of the engines. Yeah, they walk the rocket back and forth so it doesn't sphere to the left or sphere to the right. It it right. keeps it straight and upright and going in the right direction that it needs to. Yeah, it's going really fast. So if they are off by just a tiny angle, it could put them miles away from where they want to be. Yeah, we have a in our uh, book we talked about last week the story of the cosmos. Um, since it's coming out on the, which is really cool, I think, our book is coming out on the same date as the Apollo 11 launch anniversary, the July 16th. Um, but I, I quote a book, I quote a, uh, Neil Armstrong's mom okay. in my chapter. <laughs> and I think this is so cool because it's in, it's in his biography, uh, First Man. It's the only authorized biography of Neil Armstrong out there. It's a great read. It's called First Man. And, mm-hmm. uh, but in this book, uh, the author does a great job, and he has this quote from... Uh, Uh, Viola, which Mm -hmm. is Neil Armstrong's mom. And she says, As I look back, I can see how the pattern of his life has all dovetailed together. I believe God gave him a mind to use and maybe destined him to the work he has been doing. Mm -hmm. As a child and a young man, he loved and was completely fascinated by the heavens and God's great creation. It seemed as if the heavens were calling him. So great was his undying interest. He has been a fine and a good scholar, a thinker and a diligent worker. His thinking is big and his thoughts are far-reaching. He seems inspired by God and speaking his will. For this, I am over and over thankful. Hmm. But it reminds me of the scripture that we read at the beginning, that uh, the moon is a faithful witness, and Armstrong seems to have been mm-hmm. drawn like that. And I mm-hmm. think that's the same kind of experience that we have as, as Christians, that Jesus is faithful. He draws us to himself. Um, and we know that by his faithfulness, even though he might ask us to be doing things that are difficult or, or hard or challenging, as President Kennedy said, that we know that what seems impossible to man is possible with God. But I love that little quote. His mother was a devout Christian. Uh, so was his dad. And uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what Armstrong's faith finally ended up being if he was a He's very quiet about it. He's a very personal man, so I don't want to make any determination that he was or was not a believer, of course. But Yeah, he didn't seem to say or write too much, but there was an interesting quote I found, uh, Dan, after the Apollo 11 mission was over. Yeah, I wanted you to share that. Um, Neil Armstrong spoke to a joint session of Congress, mm. and uh, there's a quote I found. This was September 16th of 1969. Okay. He, he was speaking to Congress. He said, to those of you 
who have advocated looking high, we owe our sincere gratitude, for you have granted us the opportunity to see some of the grandest views of the Creator. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, one of the things I'd like to talk about, we mentioned earlier, uh, of... Okay, so we got the rocket. Michael Collins has uh, launched us, given a description of what it was like to, to ride this monster. But before we get to the landing, I just briefly wanted to mention uh, the gentleman who was the primary engineer and designer behind the rocket. Wayne, uh, we know you studied him a little bit, uh, Werner Von Braun. Werner Von Braun, and he was, this is, he has an interesting life story. He was German, mm-hmm. and he was one of the key German rocket engineers. In World War II. In, uh, in the 30s and 40s. and So the German rocket engineers, it sounds like they really wanted to pursue space flight. Yes. And then Hitler came into power and kind of steered it in a di- another direction. He wanted to use it to make the V-2 rockets and, right. and do all of that, right. of course, which was right. bad. And uh, so von Braun had a key part in that. There was a comment once by him that he he's quoted as saying when the when the V two started bombing Britain uh-huh. that von Braun made the statement it worked the rocket worked perfectly except it landed on the wrong planet. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, so it was. So he didn't wow. really want to do this. No, with he the was rocket. he he was kind of forced by what happened in Nazi Germany. To, uh, to use his science for, for war. And he was not a Nazi. I guess you would say he wouldn't be one of the, as you think of Nazis, somebody as a Nazi at heart. He was, he was more just caught up in the political and cultural milieu of his country. Yeah. Uh, and his, like many scientists in Nazi Germany before the war started, fled Nazi Germany because of what was happening. Right. Him and his brother uh, smuggled large amounts of equipment and documents about the rocket research out of Germany. They had to basically load up a train full of documents and smuggle it out under the Germans' noses. And that, Wayne, primarily was how we, more or less, I mean, Von Braun almost died in an Allied bombing raid. His mm-hmm. uh, science labs and his laboratory and places where he did work was destroyed in a huge Allied bombing raid, and he barely escaped with his life. And then later, after the war was over, surrendered to the Allies, and then we utilized his smarts and gifts and abilities and knowledge of rocketry to accelerate our space program. Yeah, well, in fact, we actually got one or two V-2 rockets. Did we? I didn't know so that. So we, we actually did, because the Americans were able to go into one of those facilities and take things out before the Russians got there. Oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> so that was part of the story. But uh, von Braun um, helped... Uh, the U.S. rocket program get get off and going faster. Yeah, yeah. And he was also the director of Marshall Space Flight Center for yeah. a while. And he was also a devout Christian, as he I He was a Christian, it. and I, I have to wonder, when he became a Christian, or was he always a Christian, or did that happen in the course of the war somewhere? I, I, think I don't know when that happened. You might, I, I from what I've read, I've read a partial, part of his biography, but it seems like he became... If he was a Christian in Germany, um, he was more ardent and and uh, more fervent after the surrender and the loss of his you mm-hmm. know his own country and surrendering to the Allies. I think he 
really took his faith more seriously after that point. But uh, but that's a good question. And but but afterwards, people that met him would would attest to him being a faithful man of God. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be clear. He was a believer. Yeah. So let's get. Uh, so that's just an interesting backstory. I mean, we're, we're just skimming the surface of all this wonderful stuff. Um, but I'd like to talk about the landing of yeah. Eagle. Mm-hmm. On the moon because it was a very tense few minutes. Um, but before we do, I want to briefly talk about uh, the the whole uh, Houston and Apollo 11, the communication. So okay. with Neil Armstrong, um, there was only one human being that was able to communicate to the crew of Apollo 11, just to simplify things and keep things safe. So when you, when Neil Armstrong radioed back to Houston, he was talking to one man. His name wasn't Houston, but that was just the radio call signal. Uh-huh. But the, the the Capcom communicator, that was Charlie Duke, he was the voice of Houston for uh-huh. Apollo 11. So when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were talking to Houston, they were talking to um, uh, Charlie Duke. Uh-huh. Charlie Duke is the youngest of all the 12 people that have walked on the moon, and he was the 10th man to walk on the moon. But I about two or three years ago, thanks to our friend's uh, mutual friends, I was invited to a Bible study men's group presentation where Charlie Duke came and spoke. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the presentation, he was taking questions from the audience, and I was sitting near the stage, and I raised my hand, and he looked right at me. Uh, I got to shake his hand, which is really cool. He was so nice. Um, but then he told me, then I asked him to tell me the story of what it was like talking down Neil and Buzz to the surface of the moon. And I couldn't believe the words were coming out of my mouth asking him that question because not only am I talking to a moonwalker whose hands I just shook, he's now going to talk to me. I'm going to hear history from the man who was a part of it. I was, it was the most fantastic experience of my life <laughs> to sit there. I was spellbound to listen to Charlie Duke tell me the story of how the eagle landed. It was neat. And what's interesting for me personally on a personal level, it was like hearing God's voice telling me, I was going to land safely myself. God really spoke through that moment. It wasn't just Charlie Duke and being starstruck by this man. It was because Charlie Duke is a Christian, too. When he came back, it wasn't on the moon where he became a Christian. He came back from the moon, uh, attended a a Bible study at a tennis club uh, on the uh, invitation of a friend, and he gave his life to Jesus. Mm. And he talks about his testimony at the end of the movie, um, uh, In the Shadow of the Moon, that was directed by Ron Howard. It's a wonderful movie about Apollo astronauts. But at the end of that, Charlie tells his story about how he gave his life to Jesus. And he says, Jesus. And it's really cool. But he is a sincere Christian man. He's in his 80s now. The youngest of the 12 moonwalkers. But I sh- Wayne, I shook the hand of a guy who walked on the moon. That's neat. I'm like, That's really I'm neat. like I, I have washed my hands since then. But it's still like, <laughs> <laughs> it's still, I think it's, it's, it's a fantastic privilege to have met a moonwalker. But anyway, so, so let's talk about the story of Apollo 11 coming down to the surface because they were running out of gas and running out of safe places to land yeah. and alarms were going off. And, right. Well, and, let's go back and talk about the lander itself a little bit. Okay. So uh, getting the lunar lander ready was the main thing they were working on between Apollo 8 and Apollo 11. Perfecting so that. Apollo yeah. 9 and 10 were about working on the lander and testing the, the lunar lander in the docking process. Okay, quick question. Did 9 and 10 go to the moon? No, 8 went to the moon. Uh, 9 orbited around Earth. So they went up into its orbit around the Earth. Okay. The lander 
made an orbit around the Earth and came back and docked with the other. Oh, so they were practicing docking and yeah, orbiting. Right. Uh, with nine. What did they do with ten? Ten went to the moon and orbited the moon, but they 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 also did the docking of the lander. Okay. But they didn't land on the moon. Okay, so they did all the trial runs. So nine. So they wanted to make sure they could get back right. before they committed themselves so to land on it. Let's right? let's just recap what happened in eight, nine, and ten. So eight at the last minute kind of went to the moon on Christmas Eve. Right. That was not scheduled. They were just going to do an Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. And then when they found out the Russians were up to something, they decided to go full board to the moon. So they did a, a lunar orbit. That was We talked about that podcast a, a few uh, mm-hmm. while back um, in April, I think it was. It was, uh, was it April? Christmas, Christmas Eve. We yeah, were Christmas Eve. Sorry. Yeah, Christmas yeah. Eve. Um, mm-hmm. And then so so and then nine did a orbit around the Earth and they just they just uh, the lunar lander and the the command module practiced rendezvous, right? Orbiting and rendezvous and then ten went to the moon and practiced orbit and rendezvous, but they didn't land on the moon, right? And then eleven, unless something happened, eleven was going to be the first to the moon. It may not have been, but uh, if everything went swimmingly, they were going to land, and so that's that's the that's that's eight nine and ten anyway. Right? Yeah. Um the lunar lander is such a weird-looking thing. It's like a spider and with tinfoil on it. There's a famous poster that I like that says, that shows the picture of it. It says, it's ugly, but it gets you there. <laughs> uh, that sounds and, like my vehicle. But, Dan, I used to, uh, I used to do a, a, a little, uh, I, I made a, a little computer program. It was a game uh-huh. on a programmable Hewlett-Packard calculator I used to use. Okay. And it was a moon landing simulation game. Oh, fun. So I put the equations of, of if you were descending down to the moon, you start with a certain amount of fuel, and you try to get the speed down so that you land and make a gentle landing on the without on crushing the moon yourself without crashing. <laughs> so I want to explain this a little bit because this is what they had to deal with. If you come in too fast and you don't have enough fuel to stop yourself, then you'll crash, right? Yeah. So if you if you but if you use up your fuel too early you can't go slow early you have to come in and and not use your fuel too fast early on and save it to the end yeah and if you if you burned up the fuel too quickly or too early then you would crash or if you come in and you um you don't slow down enough then you don't have enough you're you're going faster by the time you get close to the, so the surface. So, then you can't stop yourself. So the brakes for this lunar lander was gas. They had to basically. They no, did. they had hydrogen, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. Okay. Uh, well, they, that's what. Yeah, that's what I meant. But anyway, they had so much fuel, and so getting this to work, they had to figure out. Well, we want to have enough fuel, but we we don't want to have too much because every every ounce. They had to account for. They had to be very careful about the weight of the of the whole spacecraft, Mm. and they had to have just enough fuel to do this. Too much, they couldn't get off the ground. Too little, it wasn't going to make it to the ground. Right. So if they used the fuel up too fast, they would crash, and if they used it too slow, then they would still crash because they couldn't stop themselves. Got it. So we have a very uh, the 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 crew guys have to be very careful about how they're using fuel as they're descending. To the surface. Right. Now now let's get to talking about what Neil Armstrong, or, or I think it was Buzz Aldrin who was piloting it. No, it was Armstrong. It was Armstrong? Yeah, it was okay. Armstrong. Well, so they were on their way down. They got close to the surface. As they get close to the surface, they can see it uh, throwing up dust, 
And so Neil Armstrong is trying to figure out what's happening to the surface because they are they're coming down and they're not coming down straight vertical. No, they're they're, they're moving, angling in. They're moving sideways, and he's trying to figure out what's the ground doing. Yeah. How far? How fast am I moving compared to the ground? And where's what's the dust and what's the ground? He's trying to see through the dust to see the ground, and he sees uh, a field of boulders. About the size of Volkswagens. Yeah, and there was also a crater right about where they were going to go. And so he decides to um, use a little more thrust and, and kind of sail over this crater and the boulders. Mm-hmm. But that means that uh, he could maybe run out of fuel. They were, the astronaut, the, the uh, Houston engineers were afraid they could, he would run out yeah, of fuel. Yeah, and you, if you listen to the audio, they talk about fuel in terms of time. Yeah. 30 seconds of fuel, 15 seconds of fuel. And people started getting really nervous, and you can hear this in Charlie Duke's voice as they're communicating to this. Neil was doing these maneuvers, so they saw the craters, they saw the boulders, and he was, that's where the guidance system was taking them, right in the middle of all that mess. Right. And so Neil took manual control, flew over that, but... What he did was enter into the 60 seconds of fuel, and really it became a nail-biter because if you land and don't... People were joking, but it was kind of serious that they believed Armstrong would have landed without fuel. He would have... <laughs> no, yeah, no getting that close. He just had seconds of fuel left. Yeah, he did. So, But what else is interesting, as as he's flying over the craters, as he's flying over the boulder, uh, the boulders and the crater, um, and he's running out of fuel, two other things happen. A 1201 and a 1202 alarm, and what the heck is this? <laughs> yeah, so that was a that was a computer program alarm. It was the, basically saying the computer can't keep up. Right, and what had happened was uh, Buzz Aldrin had two guidance systems going, mm-hmm. and, he, and he later said that the MIT techs who designed the computer programs did not account for maybe the navigational system having two navigational systems, one related to Columbia, Michael Collins's ship, and one related to Earth. And so it was a data overload. But at the mm. time, uh, you know, Neil Armstrong said 1202 alarm, program alarm. What's a, what's a reading on the 1202? So you had NASA techs going back to the binders, getting the alarm codes. And they're like, go, it's a go, it's a go. And then they'd have a 1201 go off. And so running out of fuel, going over a crater, filled with bowlers. Roger, 1202, we copy it. 35 degrees. 35 degrees, 750, coming down to 23. 
15 forward. Carbon forward, coming down nicely, 200 feet. Four and a half down, five and a half down. 160 feet, six and a half down, five and a half down. Nine forward. Good. 120 feet. 100 feet, three and a half down, nine forward. 5%. On any bite. Okay, 75 feet. Guys looking good. Down a half. Six forward. 60 seconds. Bites on. Six. Down two and a half. Forward. Forward. Good. 40 feet down, two and a half. Picking up some dust. 30 feet, two and a half down. Fake shadow. Four forward. Four forward, drift into the right a little. Ready? Down a half. 30 seconds. Forward. Good. Okay. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Mode control, both auto, decent engine command, override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're looking good here. Okay, we're gonna be busy for a minute. They actually had done a lot of tests, right? Yeah. So they knew about how it should go as far as at a certain time we should be this far and right, we should go right. this fast. And so they had a kind of a script of a successful landing. Right, right. That, so they could compare the numbers they saw in the in this capsule mm-hmm. to the successful tests, right? And to, to get an idea, okay, if the program, if the computer is giving this alarm here, are we about on track? Yeah. So they they probably had to do some of that comparing to their tests. Yeah. And the the, the funny thing I was just reading this morning um, from the communications that when they landed, the it was a mystery for about three or four hours where they were. So the geologists got out their maps, the radio guys got out their maps, yeah. and there was a contest there at NASA about, are the geologists going to find them? Are the radio guys going to find them? Where are they? And three or four hours after they landed, nobody knew where they are. And it, was, and it ended up being uh, the geologists who found where their location was based on Neil's description and based on what they, he had said. But it took them several hours to actually locate where... Eagle had landed. Where was Tranquility Base? Nobody yeah. knew because yeah. it wasn't on the schedule. <laughs> so that was pretty fun. But the, the geologists won that. They were within 200 meters or so of where uh, Tranquility Base was. Well, good for them. Yeah. And uh, so they – let's talk briefly now. So we're on the moon, and uh, this brings up another interesting subject because there is a lot of people still today that think the moon landings were faked uh, or they were yeah. – there was a hoax. But, Wayne, you have a couple of – 
Uh, I mean, there's a ton of evidence. We won't go into a whole bunch of lunar conspiracy theories, but when you have a couple of knock, quick knockdowns for why this is possibly could have been, yeah. Fixed. In fact, it was a, this. This brings up a debate that was about the lunar lander before the uh, before the mission. Uh-huh. They were debating whether to put a camera on the lunar lander so that they could see the astronaut going down the ladder. Got it. Remember, they showed that on TV. Right, right. And NASA engineers didn't want to do it. They didn't want to allow seven pounds for the camera. Wow. So that was a big discussion. They finally decided to put the camera in. Yeah, that was good. Good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Because somebody somebody told them, Somebody might want to see that later. If we don't have a film of this, people won't believe that you did it. Right, exactly. And that's exactly what happened anyway, yeah. uh, for some people. Yeah. So anyway, this has been a fun, kind of interesting thing over the years, uh, and it still amazes me how many people question this, but two quick things that I think show it was real. Okay. Number one, they put uh, laser retro reflectors on the moon. So basically you can shoot a, a laser from Earth? And it hits yeah. these plates on the moon, and you get a distance of measurement. Uh, you can get moonquakes. You can get some data from this. Right. right. So you, they've measured the distance to the moon. They've measured how fast the moon is receding from Earth. There have been a lot of interesting measurements. with, And this is still used today. And even the Russians had retro reflectors they put on the moon. And uh, a lot of the retroflector, retro reflector technology and research is being done right here in Texas at the McDonald Observatory. Correct? Yeah, a lot of the tests of this was done by McDonald Observatory in West Texas. Yeah. Um, so that's one reason. Uh, so a laser shown on the moon would not, you would not be able to detect this if it were not a special device there to. Reflect it back in the opposite direction. Yeah, right, right. And then uh, that's one good thing. Then the other proof is if you look at the the good detailed photographs and videos of the of the astronauts on the surface, where you can see two devices or two things standing up on the surface, uh-huh. you'll see one shadow from each object, uh-huh. and the shadows will be perfectly parallel. Wow. This is not possible you can't do that in a st- camera studio. Couldn't do that with studio lighting because the shadows would be in, going in different directions. Yeah, if you have more than one light, then you have more than one shadow. Okay, okay. And, and there's no way they can make the shadows parallel in a studio. Okay, so that, that's pretty cool. I mean, there's a ton of other things, not to mention the 400,000 employees of NASA that would have had to have kept a secret. Right. Uh, you know, 12 men at Watergate couldn't keep a secret for, to save their lives. You know? Right. What, what do you think 400,000 people are going to say, no, it's all a conspiracy? Um, but I want to I want to read uh, a lesser known description that not uh, from Neil Armstrong after he got back from the moon. Of course, he gets the question, "What was it like? What was it like?" He gets it all the time. But in this older book that I have, first on the moon, he gives a nice description of what when he first looked out the window before he actually um, got out of the spacecraft, and then later when he did get out of the spacecraft, how he remembered what the moon looked like. And I think this is fascinating. He says, "So this is Neil Armstrong describing what the moon looked like when he got there. This is really cool." He says. The sky is black, you know, it's a very dark sky, but it still seemed more like daylight than darkness as we looked out the window. It's a peculiar thing. The surface looked very warm and inviting. It looked as if it would be a nice place to take a sunbath. It was the sort of situation in which you felt like going out there in nothing but a swimsuit and get a little sun. (laughs) From the cockpit, the surface seemed to be tan. It's hard to account for that because later when I held this material in my hand, it wasn't tan at all. It was black, gray, and so on. 
It's some kind of lighting effect, but out the window, the surface looks much more like light desert sand than black sand. So that's a nice initial description of, of what it looked like. But, of course, why did the sky look pitch black? Why were there no stars, Wayne? That's another question that people... The oh. pitch black sky is because of the, the, the way they had to take, uh, set the cameras. So the cameras have to be set to uh, kind of do a long exposure. Yeah. Or it's, uh, the starlight is very faint. So the sun kills a lot of it yeah. just by the way it, the and, sunlight is there. Yeah, yeah. and, and the, the sunlight makes the surface very bright. So it's like light pollution. It's like yeah. city light pollution in a way because the surface of the moon is very reflective and very bright. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so that, that's one reason because people sometimes will say, well, there's no stars. Well, it's kind of like moon light pollution. Yeah. It's not a – unless you're on the dark side of the moon, it's not really a good place for stargazing. So they, they, that Yeah, so in order to get good pictures of the surface – you have to kind of tone down the camera. You might so it's not yeah. so it's not sensitive. Wiped out. It's not going to be sensitive enough to get the starlight. Right, right, uh, right. Another thing, Dan, is anything in the moon that's in the sun is super hot. Super hot. And well, so anything that's in the shadow in the it's freezing in the dark, it's super freezing. So give us an idea of the temperature. Super hot, super freezing. I you don't can, know. It's hundreds of degrees difference. Yeah. But it's crazy. Yeah. And that's why they wore spacesuits. Um, right. So one side of the spacecraft would be real hot and the other side would be real cold. Wow. So that, that was another engineering feat. And this would happen in their spacesuits. Yeah, yeah. So they had to figure out how to <clears throat> cool and keep it all that. The, the interesting thing is, you've probably heard this before, the uh, Douglas Adams, the author of uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh-huh. he was an atheist. He'd recently passed away, I don't know how long ago, but he, he makes this famous analogy that a lot of atheists like to use in regards to uh, the fine-tuning of the universe because Douglas Adams uses this thing called the puddle analogy. Where he he claims that uh, life here on Earth or life in the universe is like a puddle in a mud hole, that he, that the puddle looks around and says, "Oh look, the hole fits me just perfectly, right?" But the idea is that that of course any old any old hole will do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we're just we just happen to be in the right mud puddle. That the universe is like a mud puddle and we're like the water that for, perfectly fits it. But there's that iconic picture that Neil Armstrong <laughs> took of Buzz Aldrin standing in a very small indentation, almost not quite a crater, but a, but a bowl-shaped indentation. But he's wearing a spacesuit. And so the implication is that, no, man can't go everywhere. Uh, you know, there's, <laughs> there are environments that are not suitable for us. Earth mm-hmm. is incredibly precisely suitable for us. We don't have to wear spacesuits. Uh, so, so Douglas Adams, the whole idea of this universe not being finely tuned is dispelled by Buzz Aldrin standing in a crater with a spacesuit on because yeah. we have to bring our environment with us wherever we go because not all the environments in the universe are hospitable to, to us. So, yeah, and they had to account for every bit of water and uh, oxygen that they had to breathe and everything that they yeah. did all the time. Yeah, and well then, uh, so they left the surface of the moon. They, uh, Buzz Aldrin, by the way, um, was in charge of, uh, as they were building the rockets and considering how they were going to do these things, Buzz Aldrin actually did his doctoral thesis on orbital rendezvous. Yeah. It seems kind of obscure, like what's, what use is this? But it, <laughs> it was Buzz Aldrin's smarts that figured out, how are we going to leave the surface of the moon and hook back up to Michael Collins in Columbia? You have to chase down the ship. Do you speed up? Do you slow down? Does, does the other guy speed up? Do you slow down? What are the mechanics and the, the science involved in orbital docking and rendezvous? Yeah, in fact, let's say a little bit about that. So when they got into orbit... They're still at the Earth. They haven't gone to the moon yet. 
they have to take the command module where the astronauts are in. Yeah. Disconnect it from the the rest of the rocket. And turn it around so that the nozzle of the rocket on the command module is pointed to the, towards the moon. Mm-hmm. So when they travel to the moon, it's like they're going backwards. Yeah. They're pointed towards the Earth going to the moon. And that's so that the rocket is pointed the right direction to slow them down once they get there. Yeah. So yeah. they have a certain speed to get to the moon. Then they have to slow down with the rocket to get in, in order to get in orbit. To get in the, the orbit, right. And then they also had to dock up with the lunar lander in Earth orbit so that they can take it with them yeah. to the moon. Yeah, so there's there were so many team parts to this, but Aldrin's knowledge might have seemed esoteric at the time, but my goodness, you, couldn't have, you could not have had so many successful missions without orbital rendezvous science behind it, and that's what Buzz Aldrin's... Uh, contribution to the mission was. Of course, he's the second man to walk on the moon. And just mm-hmm. a quick fact by why they call him Buzz. A lot of people mm-hmm. think it's his haircut. No. It was actually his younger sister when they were kids who could not say brother. Mm-hmm. They used She used to call him Buzzer. <laughs> and so that's what the, where oh, the yeah. name Buzz came from. Not his haircut, yeah. but his little sister calling him Buzzer. Okay. So that's just a little name there. Just a little thing. But uh, anyway, so... That is just a fascinating achievement. Um, as I said earlier, Emperor Hirohito of Japan had watched the moon landing. People in Japan had watched the moon landings. Millions of people throughout the world uh, and countries all over the world were watching this moon landing on television. I think it's the highest rated TV viewing ever. Yeah. Um, of course, it declined after we had more and more lunar missions, but mm-hmm. the Apollo mission was, was special. It was unique. It was a first. Uh, and then the astronauts splashed down. Uh, they landed on the, They took off on the 16th, landed on the 20th on the moon, came back and splashed down in the ocean on uh, the 24th of July right. and were picked up by the USS Hornet. Hornet uh-huh. uh, and then they had, to, they had to wear special suits, so they, we didn't know if they brought back moon germs, right? Who knows what the dust contained? Yeah. <laughs> so they had to be in quarantine for a while. They were in a trailer-type component, uh, compartment for a while, the three of them, until they were checked out and made sure they had Yeah, no. I always said that was a little weird, but... Uh, we didn't know. Did what were that. they going to bring back, yeah, you know? right. Uh, but they brought back, uh, I don't know how much poundage of moon rock. But 47 they, and a half pounds okay, so moon rock. When you go to the Johnson Space Center, you can see moon rocks and actually touch moon rocks that have come back from, uh, from the moon. And one of our, uh, one of our contributors, uh, Brother Guy Consolmagno, uh, talks about uh, meteorites and asteroids. And he's, a, he's a, an aficionado of astrogeology. He loves mm-hmm. rocks from other places. And I'm sure he's handled and touched and examined moon rocks before. Um, so that was really cool. I mean, it was a f- tremendous accomplishment. Nothing went wrong. I mean, everything went smoothly. And uh, they, had a, they, had, they went all over the world. They were introduced to kings and priests and met the Pope and, and had a huge ticker tape parade in, in New York City. Um, they did a tour of the world. They I, I don't know where all they went. And for, for a brief moment, Wayne, you know, you read the scripture, um, the plaque on the, on the thing. For a brief moment, the world was united yes. about this. I mean, not, not everybody, but it was a remarkable thing to have the reception that they did all over the world. The, 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 mm-hmm. the political barriers were down for a few minutes. Right. And there was a global celebration of this accomplishment. Uh, we come in peace for all men. Of course, what Armstrong said on the surface, uh, this is one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. 
the limb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches. Now, although the surface appears to be uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it, it's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. Yeah, I'm going to step off the limb now. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It really was, for a brief moment in our history, a time where the nations were together in, in some sense, even if it may have been trivial to some people. But it was a wonderful time to, to see that, to have that unity, that cultural mm -hmm. unity. We need something like that again. Um, but uh, a great... A great monumental effort. I'm glad we had the time to uh, talk about it, Wayne. It's been a quick hour. Can you believe we've been talking about this for an hour? Yeah, so I've always thought how uh, it's a, really an, exam it's an example of God's grace yeah. that we were able to do this. Absolutely. And uh, the Russians accomplished some good things in space, too, but they never put a man on the moon. No. And it was because of uh, Sputnik. In 1957, that, that the space race with the Russians began because mm -hmm. Sputnik was a little silver basketball with antenna, and it would go around the Earth every so often and beep, 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 and if you had ham radios, you could pick up Sputnik. And that was quite a thing. <laughs> and uh, we, we wanted to kind of outdo that, and so math and science became part of our curriculum. And then uh, in four, four years later, John F. Kennedy was exhorting our country to build a rocket before there were cassette tapes. <laughs> and we went to the moon. And it was hard, and it was costly, but I think... Yeah, in fact, you were talking about the program alarm. Yeah, 1202. The computer they had on the lunar lander was nowhere near the computing capacity of our modern cell phones. Oh, no, no. It was ridiculous. They went they went to the moon on an Atari 2600. <laughs> or Pong. It's, or Maybe worse. Pong. I don't, know. I don't even know if it I was really Pong. I don't know, but it's... Nowhere near, no. even what cell phones can do today. No, so a remarkable accomplishment. And, uh, Wayne, thank you. It was a great chat with you. I appreciate it. And thank we you. And uh, we look forward to our book launch. Uh, that's If you're listening to this on July 16th, uh, go to Amazon and check it out. Our book is officially released and out there for sale. That's right. The yeah. story of the cosmos. We launched on uh, the 50th anniversary with uh, the Apollo guys. Not that the Apollo guys are endorsing our book, but it's just cool that we are. We moved out. We launched on the same date. So uh, yeah, there, there's something in it for everybody. A lot of interesting things in that book. Yeah, a couple of great books I recommend if you're interested in the uh, Apollo is Michael Collins' "Carrying the Fire." That's a great book, and then Neil Armstrong, uh, the biography of Neil Armstrong, uh, first man. It was written by uh, James R. Hansen. Uh, it's the authorized biography, First Man, the Life of Neil Armstrong, a great book. And then an older book, if you can find it, is uh, one called First on the Moon, A Voyage with Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, Michael Collins and Edwin E. Aldrin, Jr., with an epilogue by Arthur C. Clarke. And that's an older book that I have. Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, he wrote an afterword after it, uh, wow. an epilogue. But uh, three great books if you're interested in, uh, in uh, more about uh, the Apollo accomplishments. So, Wayne, we will see you. It's been you. good. It's been good, and we will see you next time on Good Heavens. Uh, Neil and Buzz, 
Uh, the President of the United States is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you, over. Would be an honor. Uh, go ahead, Mr. President. This is Houston out. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you... For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure they too join with America in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. And as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this Earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done. And one in our prayers that you will return safely to Earth. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but and of peace of all nations and with interest and a curiosity and, and with a vision for the future. Uh, honor for us to be able to participate here today. And thank you very much, and I look forward, all of us look forward to seeing you on the Hornet on Thursday. Look forward to that very much, sir.